Ephesians 5, 15 through 33. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, um, we ask, well, we recognize your Holy Spirit. We recognize that you're already operating by your Holy Spirit and you, um, you were, you, you're working in us. You're, you're drawing us to Jesus Christ. Um, we know that you're doing that all the time. We ask that you would, um, uh, pick up the pace, that you would uh, draw us more decisively to Jesus, and that you would do so now. And as we come to your word, which is full of uh, a challenge and is at times bracing, scary even, and full of kindness, Grant us that we would be allured to the kindness and the mercy of Jesus Christ, that we would see him, that we would find ourselves at his feet yet again, or maybe for the first time. But will you do everything necessary so that we would be a people who can really say we have been loved by Jesus Christ and that that has changed everything? Make it so. And make us hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, everybody. All right. Hey, can you turn back to the Ephesians reading? So that's page seven. And uh, keep your eyes there. Now, here's the thing, um, everybody. So um, I am not a pilot. 
um, <clears throat> only in my dreams. But I, I, I understand that it would be a silly and dangerous thing to try to fly an airplane through the middle of the Grand Canyon. Um, that that's that's not like an insightful thing, because like my understanding is like you try to fly through the Grand Canyon and you're going to work really hard not to fly into one side of the canyon. And so you want to avoid that side of the canyon. But in avoiding that side of the canyon, canyon, you may very well fly into the other side of the canyon. So it's better just to avoid it. Right. Um, there's a lot of ways when you're flying through a canyon that you can uh, crash and burn. And. I sort of feel like that with this reading from Ephesians. There are a lot of ways to crash and burn with this reading from Ephesians. In fact, I can kind of right now hear somebody say, I don't know if this is what you're saying, but I can hear somebody say that reading from Ephesians where it talks about wives submitting to husbands and other things about marriage, that's why I don't trust church. I can hear somebody say. I can hear somebody say the church has abused people, notably women, and it happens all the time. And the church uses readings like this, I can hear somebody say, the church uses readings like this to prop up and perpetuate systems of oppression. I can hear somebody say, this reading is an epicenter of exploitation. Now, I, can you feel the force of that objection? Maybe that objection is your objection. And the reason that objection and ones like it have force is that readings like this from Ephesians and other places have been used by wicked men for wicked ends and women have been wounded in them. But then there's more. There's kind of more things that one might run into because the whole concept of marriage is a, is a formidable topic, right? What is marriage? What's it for? Who gets to marry whom? Those are some of the most contentious questions in our day. And in fact, I bet for some of us, even as I'm starting to talk about this right now, for some of us, your, your heartbeat is starting to go quick, quicker right now. Because um, I can hear somebody saying, oh no, what's he gonna say? Um, I can hear somebody say, don't, please don't go culture warrior on me. Um, I can hear somebody else saying, uh, please don't go soft. And I can hear somebody say, can we just not talk about this? Can we do like, skip this bit? Am I wrong? We're flying through the Grand Canyon. There are cliffs on both sides and it's super easy to crash and burn. And yet, despite all of that, I'm asking us all to do a courageous thing right now. I'm gonna ask us all to um, wade into this reading despite all the scary stuff. Why? Here's why. Because Emmanuel exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus for the flourishing of New York City. And there's an aspect of Jesus's beauty that you can really only see when you grasp his vision for marriage. You see, the deep meaning of Christian marriage, and by the way, I'm not talking about everybody's view of marriage. Uh, today, I am we are really specific on the Bible's vision for marriage. The deep meaning of Christian marriage is not fundamentally about romance, good as that is. The deep meaning of Christian marriage is not uh, about finding yourself by finding the right person. And the deep meaning of Christian marriage is definitely not about coercive power and oppression. The deep meaning of Christian marriage is that Christian marriage in a mysterious, remarkable way, one so mysterious that Paul in our reading says, 
This is a big mystery. And if Paul's saying this is a big mystery, then just take his word for it. This is a big mystery. But the deep meaning of Christian marriage is that it is designed in a remarkable way to be a window, a window, something that opens up the ability to see beyond itself. It's designed to be a window to show us the love that Jesus has for the church. Okay, let me use a silly example with that has no emotional payload. This is going to be the last bit of this sermon that doesn't have an emotional payload. But um, like two weeks ago, I'm really excited about this. There's a new rover on Mars. I think there's a couple new rovers on Mars. But anyways, I'm talking about perseverance. Okay, now what's perseverance for? What's the new rover for on Mars? It's there to show us a different world. And that's a little bit what Christian marriage does. All of its beauty and its brokenness as well is designed to point away from itself, to point and show us something of another world. Or maybe better, it's designed to show us that we were made for the love that can only come from a different world. We were made, you and me, Whether we're single, whether we're married, you and I were not just made for human marriage. We were made to be united with Jesus Christ in an intimacy that transcends all of our desiring. And Christian marriage is meant to point us beyond itself to that greater union with Christ. And Emmanuel, if we could see that vision and if we could taste that love, that love which Christ has for us, then when we see that vision and taste that love, it'll backfill your vision of marriage with a transcendent meaning. And that transcendent meaning will make a lot of our culture wars sound petty, and it will fill husbands and wives and single celibate Christians with a purpose that extends throughout this life and throughout all of eternity. Now, those are big claims, but I believe all of them are true based upon the passage we just read. And Emmanuel, that's why I'm asking you to do a very courageous thing. I'm asking us for right now to take our fears and our suspicions and our anger and our pain around marriage and all the conversations that come up and just for a few minutes, set them kind of right over here. Just set them here. I'm not asking you to ignore them. I am not asking you to suppress them. I am not asking you to discount them. I'm asking you to put them over here for a few minutes and then just look at how Jesus presents himself in this reading because Jesus has a gift he wants to give us. Okay? Can you do that? All right, come with me. Let's get into it. All right. Now, when you look at this reading, we're going we're, we're gonna to focus on the second paragraph. Um, I'm pretty sure that when most of us look at this reading, the thing that is provocative, at least one of the things, is that uh, Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands. Am I wrong? However, for the original hearers, that wasn't the provocative thing. The provocative thing was verse 25, and that's where we're going to start. Take a look at verse 25. It says this, husbands, love your wives. There's the provocative bit for the first readers. Here's why. The word love there is not talking about romantic love. It's not saying wives or husbands shouldn't love their wives romantically. That's not the point, but it's but that's not the main point here. It's not talking about sexual love in verse 25. It's the word agape. And agape in Greek is a love that decenters self, recenters 
the person who is being loved in such a way that we seek their best. So what he's saying here is, husbands, decenter yourself, center your wives, and seek their best. Okay, lovely. But what does that look like on the ground? Well, we learn what that looks like by looking at Jesus Christ. Go back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church, for her. Now, stop there and hold the phone. Do you catch what that says? Paul, in verse 25, just redefined love in marriage. What is it that comes to your mind when you think about love? Okay, we could have a long conversation about everybody's different visions and perspectives and understandings of the concept of love. Because there's probably as many of as many visions of love as there are people on this call. But if you're a Christian, what needs to come to your mind when you think about love is this. God in Christ surrendering himself to death upon the cross so that his enemies could become his bride. And you need to catch how radical that is. That is a big, radical vision of love. Because until we see how radically Jesus redefines the concept of love, until we see that, then all of Christian ethics around marriage and sexuality will just remain kind of incoherent or arbitrary. But when you see how Jesus redefines love, then the pieces start to fall into place and we begin to understand a Christian vision of marriage and sexuality and so forth. Okay, let me back up and let me tell you a story. This comes from Ezekiel chapter 16. We're not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it. Ezekiel chapter 16. Now, this is the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And I'm pretty sure in Paul's mind, as he's writing our reading, he's thinking about Ezekiel 16, at least somehow. It's kind of in the background. Now, in Ezekiel 16, in this story from hundreds of years before Jesus, um, God and Israel are presented as a man and wife. God is the man, Israel is the woman. And in this story in Ezekiel, God, as a, a prospective husband, so to speak, finds Israel, this beautiful woman, and God is delighted with this woman, Israel. And so God courts Israel. And then God proposes to the beautiful young woman called Israel. And they get married. In Ezekiel chapter 16. And God says, I made my vow to you, Israel, and I entered into a covenant with you, which means he got married. They got married. And then after they're married, God just showers his bride with gift after gift, clothes and jewelry and gold. God gives Israel a crown. He makes her a queen. And God just cherishes and adores his wife, Israel. And then tragedy happens because Israel decides to run off with another man, abandons the Lord. In fact, not just once, uh, she runs off with a lot of guys, a lot of times. And one of the themes, one of the heartbreaking themes, have you ever noticed this? One of the themes that runs through the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, if you read it, is that God finds himself to be a bereft and abandoned husband. Now, keep that in your mind and come back 
to Jesus. And the idea of Jesus giving himself for the church, the church and Israel, Israel is the people of God in the Old Testament. The church is the people of God in the New Testament. There's a continuity between the two. And so in our passage, when Jesus gives himself up for the sake of the church as his bride, the image there is not like a fairy tale image. You know, sometimes in a fairy tale, you might have a hero who who, who sacrifices himself or puts himself at great risk because um, for the sake of his beloved. But, but in those stories, usually the beloved is somebody who's super virtuous and super worth it and super worthy. But in this reading, Jesus is laying down his life for his bride, whom he knew had already cheated on him and who he knows will cheat on him in the future. Friends, this is a sacrificial love that is of a different order. But look at his aim. Verse 26. He lays down his life for his bride. Verse 26. In order that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Those images are being borrowed from Ezekiel 16. And it needs to blow our mind. Because what this is telling us is that, of course, God was tender and full of love to Israel before her unfaithfulness. But now Jesus' love to the church after our unfaithfulness is not less, it's more. Jesus' love is kind, not less kind, more kind. And Jesus gives himself on the cross so that his previously unfaithful spouse could be restored to resplendent glory and maybe, in a, in a way, a glory that surpassed anything that went before. Friends, this is not normal love. It's hardly even reasonable love. It is love that is from another world. And Emmanuel... This love of Jesus Christ for his church is the love that your soul was designed to receive. And without it, you will never be fulfilled. You will never be fulfilled without this love. Even if you have a great marriage, even if you get married and it's just amazing. If you do not have the love that comes from Jesus Christ that is, that is described in this passage, then you will never finally be fulfilled. And it also explains why a Christian can be single and celibate for all of her or his life and be deeply, fundamentally fulfilled and as fulfilled as anyone else because we are to be a people who are fulfilled finally and ultimately because of the love that Jesus Christ showed for us when he died upon the cross and purchased our redemption and made us holy and full of resplendent glory because of his mercy. That is the love that fulfills us. And until we grasp that, all our talk about marriage and sexuality will miss the mark. But now we are gonna talk about marriage and we need to apply this. And we're gonna apply this first of all to husbands. Husbands, Christian husbands. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then this definition of love that Jesus has is the baseline standard for your marriage. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, in the same way, pause. Husbands, let that word, let those three words, in the same 
well, four words. In that same way, let those four words haunt your life. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Let me say it differently. Husbands, Jesus loves you very much. And he showed you his love for you by dying for you when you were completely unfaithful to him. And on the day that you got married, Jesus told you to spend the rest of your life loving your wife like Jesus has loved you. Let me say it differently. Husbands, Jesus is calling you to decenter yourself, recenter Jesus, pursue your wife's best, and die in the attempt. That's your job. Now, uh, everything's going to get really heavy for a few minutes. Okay, if things weren't heavy, they're going to get super heavy right now. Okay, so I need to address a few things. Here's a few things. Uh, Christian husbands sometimes abuse their wives. And it happens way too often. And it is appalling. One of the dismaying experiences of being a pastor is finding out that Christian women and Christian wives are often frightened and that their fear is well-founded because they have found themselves exploited and abused by Christian men and sometimes by their husbands. And sometimes Christian men have used this passage and others to smuggle in their abuse. And that means I need to do some warning right now. And I want husbands, listen. Men, one day you and I are going to stand before Jesus. The one to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. And he will evaluate how we have treated our wives and how we have treated all women. And there will be no evasion on that day. And if we have abused our wives or any woman, and if we have neglected our wives, or if we have treated them with contempt, or if we have raised our hands in anger, or if we have exploited them or anyone else for our own selfish desires, listen to me, this is what's going to happen. We will find ourselves looking into the eyes of an angry God. And you and I do not have the capacity to fear that day enough. I'm telling you, fear it now. And right now, if your heart rate is elevated, then I'm going to tell you what we need to do. We need to run to the cross desperately because Jesus's death is the only way to escape that judgment. And if you run to the cross, you will find that you are looking into the eyes of a gracious God. So run to him, but run to him right now. And then go to your wife and ask her this question. How is it that I have held you in contempt? Tell me. And then be quiet 
until she's all done telling you. And then get up and go back to the cross of Christ and make your camp at the foot of the cross of Christ. Make it your permanent dwelling and ask Jesus to work on you, pardoning your sin, but then transforming you from the inside out. And don't leave and don't stop asking for mercy until your wife, and then keep on going beyond this, but until your wife can read this passage and say, Yes, I can recognize that my husband loves me in a way that echoes Christ's own love. I'm trying to be as clear as I can. Please hear me. Now, everybody breathe. (sighs) Okay. Now, this is actually, let's go back to the text. This is actually where we can pick up the submission thing. And it begins to make sense, okay? So uh, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. What, what do we do with that? Well, let me know, know, notice a couple things, okay? First of all, do you notice in verse 21, submission, verse 21, submission is part of every Christian's life, okay? So it's not restricted. It's not like women are the only people who submit. All Christians are called to submit in different contexts and in appropriate ways. Um, in fact... Even Jesus himself submits, using the same word, submits to his father. And you can read about that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. It talks about how Jesus is going to submit, uses the same word, to the will of his father. And it's talking in that context about uh, a time in the future. But if you go back and you read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his crucifixion, you can see, he doesn't use the word submit, but you can see Jesus submitting to his father in live action. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his crucifixion, Jesus is praying and he says, Father, I really, I really don't want to go to the cross. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, one of the things that that means is that if you're a Christian, um, our salvation was achieved through the voluntary submission of Jesus to the Father's plan. Now, the Father wasn't coercing Jesus at all. Please don't believe that. That's not what submission is. Jesus uh, um, D- Jesus did not submit to his father because he was inferior. That's, that's actually a heresy. Jesus is not inferior to the father. He is eternally, perfectly equal with his father. Jesus voluntarily submitted to his father's will because that was the best way to fulfill the mission, the mission of redemption. And that's how Christians submit to one another within the church. So Christian submission within the church is a, listen to this, a voluntary consent to godly leadership for the purpose of a common mission. So an, an example outside the context of marriage, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a priest, I'm a pastor. And, and part of one of the things I do is I promise to submit to my bishop. My submission is a voluntary consent to the bishop's godly leadership in order to promote the mission of the church. Now, Christian marriage has a mission, and that mission is very specific. The mission of Christian marriage is to display a dynamic of love from another world. The mission of Christian marriage is to hold up a unique kind of union that Jesus has with his church and with his bride. That's what we were talking about earlier. Now, keep that in mind and look at verse verse 31. You see, it's a quotation. That quotation comes from the second chapter of the Bible. It's the very beginning, Genesis chapter two. And there, God creates 
the world and he designs and establishes marriage and he designs it in a very particular way. He designs it so that the man and the woman are to come together and become one flesh. That is, they are to be united with each other in a way where they, they're almost like one person. Now, much later, Jesus comes and we find out in our reading that that, that structure of marriage between a man and a woman has a deeper meaning. That the unity between the man and the woman within marriage is a picture or an illustration or a parable that helps us imagine the far more perfect union of Jesus and his church, which is the point of our lives. That's the mission of Christian marriage. And therefore, a Christian man and a Christian uh, woman in marriage are to work together as a team so that they can echo that bond and that dynamic between Christ and the church. So the husbands, the man's, uh, the man is supposed to focus on emulating Jesus's self-sacrificial love. So decentering self, recentering Jesus, seeking his wife's best interest, and dying in that attempt. The wife, on the other hand is to model the church's consent to Jesus's loving leadership. And that requires enormous courage. It requires its own kind of decentering of self and recentering of Christ. And then it requires that wives expect that one way Jesus will lead you is through the godly counsel of your husband. Now, let me put a couple caveats here. This is very important. This does not mean that you tolerate abuse. It never means that. This doesn't mean that you tolerate stupid. That's not what this is about. There will come times where you need to say, I love you, stop acting like a fool, okay? Um, every husband I know needs that a lot, okay? So do that, please. Um, there will be times where you'll need to take other kinds of actions that no sermon can, can tell you in advance what that's going to be. What we need to do is all of us, Christian men, Christian women, Christian uh, single celibate folks, uh, we need to make our camp at the foot of the cross. We need to all of us be captivated and on, in an ongoing way, transformed by Jesus's grace so that our trust in Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we need to pursue wisdom. You see at the top of our reading, walk in wisdom, right? We all need to have wise people around us who can uh, help us see how to apply these these uh, these principles and these dynamics into our particular situation because each situation is a little bit different. Each relationship is a little bit different. Each time there's times in life where things are a little bit different and we all need to gather wisdom in order to apply this well. However, as difficult and sometimes complex as it is, it's worth it. It's worth we pursue this. And the reason it's worth it is that the mission is worth it. Remember, marriage points beyond itself to a greater union, and it's that union between Christ and his church that every one of us needs. 
Friends, every one of us has hopes and fears and disappointment and pain and desire. And they're all of those things are very often wrapped up in the concept of marriage. That's true for people who are married. That's true for people who are not married. That's people. That's true for people who wish they were married. That's true for people who used to be married. We all have hopes and fears and disappointment and pain and desire that's all wrapped up in this concept of marriage. But the thing is, listen to me, marriage will never fulfill all of those needs and desires. In fact, one reason why marriage disappoints is that on the one hand, we can't help desiring it, but on the other hand, even when we get it, it never quite fulfills. And the reason for that is that it's meant to point to the greater union. But when a Christian man and a Christian woman Sinners who are broken at the foot of the cross and surrendered to Jesus, that marriage, both its beauty and its limitations and its brokenness, can kind of point the way to the greater marriage. That marriage where the Christian man is sacrificing self for the sake of his wife and dying in the attempt, and where the Christian woman is consenting to that godly leadership, all of it together as a team point to Jesus. And that kind of marriage can become a window to another world or a window to a love that is from another world for which we were designed. It points to the God whom we have abandoned but who refused to abandon us. It points to the God who sought us out and died upon the cross so that we might become his restored bride and live in eternal and resplendent glory. That is the only kind of love which will satisfy us forever. So friends, if you're a single Christian, then understand that your celibacy and your devotion to the Lord is a witness to that love as well. It's a witness that that love of Christ is really enough. And we need you all to show us that. And I said before, we honor you for that. And if you're in a Christian marriage, then the man and the woman, you are a team together and your mission is to reflect the beauty of Jesus's love to each other and to your children and to your church and to your community until you are parted by death. And when you are parted by death, you will find yourself embraced by the one who chose you before the foundation of the world and in whose love all desire is delighted joy. So pursue that kind of marriage, the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.